Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, January 31st, 2011. Very excited about today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know what the topic is all about. I'll be interviewing Frank Turk. I'm so giddy, I'm doing the white man overbite and dancing in my seat. Doing the Muppet dance, of course, you know, know, that's where you dance without legs. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we chronicle them, we document them, we respond to them, and when appropriate, we rebuke those who are doing such things and call them to repentance, the forgiveness of sins, getting back to preaching Christ and Him crucified and rightly handling God's Word. Now, on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, during the intro music, I talked about it, I sent out a tweet I hate that word, by the way. I sent out a Facebook status update. I informed the world that uh, today I'm going to be interviewing Frank Turk. And Frank, great guy. I, I announced that I would be able to interview him. I pre-recorded the interview, so you, you know that's how I generally do things. And uh, it was a fantastic interview. Looking forward to playing the interview for you to hear. And uh, uh, one of the reasons why I felt it was important to do the interview with Frank really came down to the fact that I, I think the timing worked against him. Uh, you, had, uh, you had Jason Hood's uh, article coming out at Christianity Today, leveling the charge against uh, Michael Horton and the uh, White Horse Inn guys, uh, leveling a charge against them of antinomianism, which is ridiculous. But, um, and, then, and then Frank Turk's open letter came out, and I think in some senses uh, Frank Turk got caught in the crossfire between Jason Hood and, uh, and uh, Michael Horton. And as a result of it, I, I didn't want the very important issues that he raised in his open letter to get lost in the shuffle because I, I thought that R. Scott Clark's, uh, Dr. Clark's response to uh, uh, Frank Turk, you know, it, 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 basically lumping him in and, you know, claiming that he was making the charge of antinomianism, I don't think that was completely accurate. And, and uh, as a result of it, I discussed that with uh, Frank uh, during the interview. And it was a fantastic interview. I've talked with uh, Frank before, and uh, and uh, getting to know him better and better. And uh, after after the interview, obviously, just solid brother in Christ, and uh, a man whom I, I I look forward to continuing our friendship growing. 
And so with that, without any further ado, here is uh, the first part of my interview with Frank Turk. I'll play it. We'll, we'll get about roughly maybe about 25, 30 minutes into the interview. I'll take a break, pay some bills, and, uh, and then come back to the interview. So here is uh, part one of uh, my uh, interview recorded earlier with Frank Turk. All right, on the line, I have Frank Turk from the Pyromaniacs blog. And uh, Frank has uh, kind of been the one of the men of the moments. Uh, mo- mo- men of the moment? Yeah, with uh, his open letter to Mike Horton. And I wanted to bring him on to uh, really give him an opportunity to talk about some of the issues that he's brought up in his uh, in his open letter, and uh, and to kind of get him out from the crosshairs uh, between Mike Horton and Jason Hood over at Christianity Today. Frank, thanks for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Oh, it's it is wildly my pleasure, Chris. I really appreciate you you uh, letting me have some time with you. Oh, you know, I I got to tell you, I I enjoyed your letter. I thought you 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 brought up some great points. I like the tone that it was uh, it was written in. And uh, one of the th- one of the words that I found uh, mysteriously missing in light of R. Scott Clark's response to you was the word antinomianism. I don't think you were arguing that the uh, the White Horse Inn guys are antinomians. You want you care to elaborate on that? Well, if you translate my letter into the Greek and then into Latin so that it can be properly disseminated through the church, clearly the word antinomian is in about every other paragraph. So I, I just found that uh, very astute of, uh, of Dr. Clark to, uh, to have done all that work. It, it took a lot of work to get to that place, so I appreciate him investing all that time. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but, but, that's, but that said, Chris, you know, I, I, it, it, I can't expect somebody to plow through the 250 comments that came after that letter. So honestly, in, in that respect, it sounds sarcastic to say that, but, you know, the truth is I did specifically say that they are not antinomian right. and they are not fostering antinomianism. I think – you see, I, I think what has to happen when you read the letter is that you have to get to my last point mm-hmm. to understand what I'm really talking about because you know, we're, I, I think that we'll probably have a lot of time uh, as, as much as we have time today to talk about the law gospel distinction to talk about its appropriate uses to talk about you know the third use of the law and so on and and what the it, it really are there limits to that approach to theology what are what are the limits that we can we can really set up boundaries and say that you know law gospel is a good way to get us started but it's not where we end the discussion okay. but uh, but for dr clark uh, to 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 look in and say that I was accusing them of antinomianism overlooks the fact that I'm not saying they're antinomians or fostering antinomians. I'm saying that they're causing people to be irresponsible with the law gospel distinction. Okay, well let's start with that. In your letter, you actually say that uh, that uh, that there are folks who are taking the law gospel distinction too far. Is this you know is this an a, a, an endemic problem? Is it huge? Is it a minor problem? Because I got to tell you, I mean, I review uh, so many sermons here at Fighting for the Faith, and uh, when I do my program prep, a lot of people don't realize that I I, re- I review probably five to six different sermons before I you know off, you know off the air before. I find one that I think that I want to bring to the air. And I just, in in evangelicalism as a whole, I don't see that the law, you know, an overuse of law and gospel is the problem. If anything, I think most evangelicals in America, law gospel is completely lost on them. They have no idea what you're talking about. And when you bring it up and you bring take them to Romans or Galatians, they're like deer in the headlights. They, they don't, they go, I, I don't even know what you're talking oh, about. What? You, you can actually preach the gospel to Christians? What are you talking about? 
Well, I think I think you're right there, Chris. I mean, that that is, you know, in my letter. See, I think that's another thing that gets lost in my letter is that I credit uh, Dr. Horton and all of his cohorts at the White Horse Inn for doing a good labor in in ex- expounding on some of on on the law gospel distinction on the on the difference between uh, an imperative and an indicative in in the writings of Scripture mm-hmm. because it is lost. You know, I, I think that it is entirely. It is entirely justified to say that there is a rampant lack of theological, uh, you know, uh, really just just moxie, just just, you know, just a toughness in our in our in our general evangelical theology today, because we think that if we have our best life now and everybody knows what I mean when I say that, (laughs) if we have our best life now and we do all these good things that somehow that either the gospel is implicit or we are we are doing the gospel thing. And, And that's that's. I don't know. I, I think that that is that is is its own kind of troubling, and the White Horse Inn is a great tool to find out how troubling it is and how pervasive it is. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, so I would agree with you. I mean, I think it's it's totally right. You know that that when we think about you know what the Bible the what the Bible says and the way it says it, the first thing we have to do is distinguish between the things that God says we must and must not do in order to be righteous. Okay, mm-hmm. which convicts us of sin. And then the promise of the gospel, which tells us that in spite of our sin, God has made a way for us to be with him. Okay. You know, that Christ's work is meaningful, and it is in, in the Old Testament, it is meaningful as the promises that God makes to the people to, that, he has, that he has chosen. In the New Testament, it's made real as the types and shadows are, are made into historical events. And then after you know the gospel is is the promise to everyone you know to jew and gentile to those who are near and far away uh you know that that's the gospel that that there's now an, and and see i think this is a place where you and i are going to disagree in a friendly way i think that that offer you know da carson this week tweeted that the offer of repentance is not really the gospel but it's part and parcel of that you know when christ died he didn't just die it wasn't just a spectacle but that christ died for us Right. You know, Christ didn't die to be a statue in a mortuary someplace. Christ died for us, for sin. Mm -hmm. And that is where we hit the road with the gospel. Mm -hmm. You know, that there's a difference between those things. And for me, you know, the third use of the law, I I am just not, uh, you know, because I'm a Baptist, I'm just not a big fan of, 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 of the third use of the law, not because it's not true. Okay, but because I think that it it's trying to put consequences of the gospel in the same category as the stone tablets, and they're different categories. Okay, how how do you see them as different categories? Well, this is something I'd like to explore because as a Lutheran, you know, you know the way I was catechized. I mean, you know, the Luther's small catechism. I mean, it begins in the Ten Commandments. Yes, and um, and not only that, Luther's small catechism is short enough that you can actually pray the whole thing as part of a devotion time. And uh, and I oftentimes pull out Luther's small catechism and work through it. And I, I, I never exhaust the thing, but I'm always right there, you know, beginning with the Ten Commandments. And uh, I understand that the Ten Commandments tell me what I ought to do. And, and over and over again, as I meditate on and read the Ten Commandments, uh, I, I just sit there and go, man, I'm just not doing this. Yes. And at, well, the, and at the same time, I... I 
when I when I look at the Ten Commandments, I see the thing that is the will of God for me to do, and I know what a good work is. I don't have to manufacture some kind of a good work. I know what it is because God's law tells me what a good work is, and so as a result of it, it, it has a convicting uh, uh, power that drives me back to the cross, and at the same time, I, I think the Holy Spirit uses it to say to me, "Here's here's what I really want you to do," and 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 there's there's a sense, there's an urgency to doing that. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, you know what? Like I said, I think that there's a right-minded way to see the third use of the law. Okay. Okay. But but I would say this: that there's a distinction between. You know, for example, as, as you say, reading the Ten Commandments, and even after seeing Christ as your Savior and, and putting your trust in Him, uh, you know, reading those Ten Commandments and say, you know what, gosh, I am still a very greedy person. You know, I I still am a person. You know, if 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 we take uh, Jesus's application of Deuteronomy and, and look at what it means to be a murderer, I I still can be a person who who's hateful. Mm-hmm. You know, I I I am a person who. Uh, um, uh, who, who doesn't always honor my parents. I am a person who sometimes, and this is going to shock a lot of people. Don't I, sometimes I don't keep the Sabbath. Yes. You know, you know, I, th- this is a, this is a, a question. Uh, you know, I, I, I think people, uh, unfortunately represent me as a, as a, as a dispensationalist and, and I don't have anything against my dis- dispensational brothers. I'm just not one of them. My, my point here though, instead of, instead of chasing all the rabbits is, is really to say this, there is a difference between reading the law and finding conviction in it and knowing that our life is different now. And that be, the reason we are even convicted is because we have a new life. You know, that there is a necessary consequence of the gospel for which the law can be our tutor Okay, mm-hmm. that it, that it can it can assist us in 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 walking down this path of sanctification. It, it ought to assist us in walking down the path of sanctification. But the truth is, it's not the law that actually sanctifies us. No, it's okay? not. Yeah, it's, it's the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us, and it's our willingness that has changed. Okay, you know, I think that in the law gospel distinction, we miss the fact. That the that uh, it can be missed. Okay, I don't think everybody misses it. It's certainly not confessionally missed in the confessions. It's not missed, but that we are changed so that when we hear the law, it's not just convic- conviction and oppression. Mm-hmm. We receive it, and then like like when somebody puts a bowl of ice cream in front of you. And I said this. I said this on the blog someplace this week. But you know, I could say let's have ice cream, and nobody would see that as the law. You know, nobody would see that as a command. It's a it's it's kind of a joyful noise. You know, it's, it's kind of this thing where we say, oh, God, I can have ice cream. Mm-hmm. So so, you know, when, when in Hebrews, the writer says, let's cast off sin. You know, he's not saying the law says you must cast off sin. He's saying <laughs> Christ has died and he's better than these sacrifices. So let's cast off sin. Let's cast it off. Well, this comes to one of your points that you bring up the fact that not everything, especially when there is admonition for Christians in the epistles, not everything is imperative or indicative. There is a subjunctive mood, it, yes. which really belies the sense in which uh, the, that the person doing the good work, it's springing automatically from within them. Yes. But I th- is is that really not what the, the New Testament teaches? It is, it, one of the things I, I always cringe at is when I hear some some of the newer Calvinists, when they yes. talk about the motivation to good works, they say, well, I do good works because I'm grateful. And I just, and I just bristle at it because that's not actually correct. 
we do good works because we're a new creation in Christ. Yes. And th- I think that's really the gist of James's point when he says, just as the body that is not breathing is dead, so faith without works is dead. Yet t- there's no such thing as bodies that are not breathing that are alive. That's ridiculous. And there's no such thing as faith that doesn't produce good works. Or as Martin Luther, his his point was, you know, he'd likened it to the flame on a candle. There's no such thing as a, as, a, as a flame on a candle that doesn't also give off heat. So, you know, it, it all goes together. And we do these things because we have been set free in Christ. We are a new creation. The Holy Spirit indwells us and convicts us of our sin and, and moves us and sanctifies us and has us now not living our lives turned in on ourselves, the incurvatus say, but has us instead looking to God and looking to our neighbor because that's what we have been set free to do because sin is actually really slavery and bondage. And in Christ, as a new creation, we are set free from that bondage to self, that bondage to sin, that bondage to death and the devil. And now you can't help but do good works and sometimes you do need somebody to come along and do some pruning or kick you in the the hindquarters because we're constantly wrestling with our sinful nature this side of uh, Christ's return. No, that's that that you know. Of course, I I just this is you know everybody says well Chris Roseboro's a law gospel guy, so he's going to give Frank a heart. That this is why I love to listen to you, my friend, because you're not caught up in the in the you're you're you understand the limits of law gospel. You understand that it is established so that we can rightly distinguish between I work, therefore I can be righteous, Mm -hmm. and I am righteous, therefore I am free to do. And and that that is the big deal. You know, for me, I think the passage that gets overlooked all the time in this is when Jesus, you know, when somebody asks somebody, you know, does somebody, is somebody unclean because of something they eat? And Jesus comes back and says, you know, it's out of the overflow of the heart. Right. That a man does all kinds of things, and that's not just about sin. Mm-hmm. If that that is not just a statement about sin. That's a statement about our nature. And mm-hmm. when our nature is changed, we can now do things that we couldn't do before. We want things we didn't want before. Right. And and you know that is the whole new birth thing. Is is that is that's part of our theology. If we miss that, gosh, what what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Now, so this kind of leads to the logical question. Since your letter was an open letter to Michael Horton, do you think, is it your opinion, that this, this, this other piece, this distinctive, is not, is not brought up clearly enough in their programming? It's obviously, it's, it's there in the Lutheran Confessions, it's there in the Westminster uh, Confessions and the Catechism. Heidelberg, right. Uh, it's, it's in all of that. Uh, do you think that, uh, that Michael Horton and uh, Kim Riddlebarger and the gang, that they need to do... Uh, maybe a better job of bringing in this part of it. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I think that's an interesting question because I, you know, I, I honestly, people think, you know, I, I, I wake up Wednesday morning and somehow I blow off six pages and it and it gets posted at one a.m. in the morning and and it's a miracle, you know. The, these 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 open letters, anything anything that any of us write at Team Pyro for certain is 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 usually. Uh, it stems from conversations we're having and experiences we're having as we try to integrate them and relate them into our Christian life, you know, and, and to write a six page letter to Mike Horton. Uh, honestly, I say that I've been thinking about it for two years. I have been thinking about it really as long as I have been listening to them because they are so useful. It is such a useful program. And, and I, it's just recently that to me, 
sort of some of the some of the, the the cogs have clicked together for me to see that this language at the White Horse Inn is present in a kind of uh, of uh, of apologetics culture out there, and and that that they I mean I'll be honest I think Team Pyro is also partly responsible for that culture, and we could talk about that in a couple of minutes. But I think that it's it's right to say that that in in trying to vanquish one kind of theological foe over the last twenty years. I think that White Horse Inn has overlooked the fact that while it is true that the gospel when preached will be charged with antinomianism, we have to be able to say every time we brush up against that wall, as Paul did, may it never be. Right. May it never be. And, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I, I'm, I think I'm still in the running for a, for a, a conference this, uh, this spring. Uh, where I, I'll have an opportunity to speak to uh, to street preachers about the the, the issues of character. Mm-hmm. What is what does should the character of a street preacher look like? You know that is that is a huge matter because it seems to me that Paul never you know barged into a bar room and started belting out the gospel. Right. Paul always walked into a culture and lived in the culture and worked in the culture and the people he was near were the ones he preached to and then he went to the Jews who ought to have known better and he went into the synagogue and if they rejected him he went to the gentiles right you know we have to have that kind of character where we're willing to say these are people these are people and and sure okay law gospel distinction sure we don't want them to have works righteousness but you know what what about us what about us if we really do believe that there are necessary consequences of the gospel are we careful enough to say that are we careful enough to say that the new birth should render us a certain way? And, and honestly, sometimes it's hard to see, okay, even even in me. I mean, especially probably in me because, uh, you know, Paul was the greatest sinner in the first century. I think that if we come, if we finally get now, we line everybody up. I'm in the top five. I may not be number one, but I, I'm, in, I'm definitely in the top five, and I make mistakes. Well, yeah, I, I'm with you there. I'm, I, you know, I, 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 I'm in the I running for number one. I see when we walk past in the hall, Chris. Yeah, you know. <laughs> It goes without saying, you know. But but you know the 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 idea of that and the ability, for example, and I think this is a perfect example. The ability just to say, you know what, I, uh, we had a we had an engaging conversation, and in parts of it, I got carried away. So, for example, I said something about Tim Challies on Friday. I I've already asked for his forgiveness. Okay? He, okay, he brought it to me and said, Frank, that was not right. Fine, you know what. I I had no intention to offend you. Therefore, let me say that I was wrong to offend you. I apologize. Please forgive me. And I, you know what? I, I it's I honestly want the forgiveness, but I should have no problem doing that. If my pride stands in the way, if I'm saying, "Well, Tim, you know, it's just a joke. What the heck? It was just a joke." Mm-hmm. You know what? Where that's pride. My humor is standing in the way of me and a brother. What? What? Mm-hmm. Well, how can I let that be? Right, and you. But, but, so you said something disparaging about Chal- Chalice is like the most level-headed guy out there. Uh, exactly. I, I, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to go into it. I already apologized for it, Chris, so I'm not repeating it. If uh, well, somebody yeah. wants to see what I said and my apology, they can go to teampyro.blogspot.com and see it. Well, it, 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 here's good news. Since I'm a Lutheran, I can also get, provide absolution for you. It, you know, I, I forgive you in the name of Christ. Your sins are forgiven, there, Frank. <laughs> I actually feel better. Good. <laughs> <laughs> that was I, I, quick. Seriously, I actually do feel good. I that's yeah. a, it's an interesting thing that you know I grew up Catholic, so I, I sometimes those words mean something that I don't know. I, I have to wonder if I, if they still mean what they. Uh, well, uh, hey, they, listen. For me, it's all about the gospel. I mean, 
when I preach when I preach the law, I I don't like to pull any punches. I you know, and I think I got to say this. One of the things I've noticed, at least in in uh, some of the circles that I run in, in this in the Missouri Senate, is that there is a trepidation and almost fear of calling out individual sins. And many times there's guys who will talk about sin in general. But then what happens is they get to a biblical text in the lectionary that goes after adultery or goes after gossiping or whatever. And there's almost a sense in which there's, I'm really sorry that I had to say this, but it was in the text and I was kind of forced to read it. It's like, good night. Do you guys even read Luther? I mean, when you read Luther's sermons, I mean, he chases after individual sins and specifically names them and names the sinners even sometimes. And he chases after them like he is a dog from hell. And yes. and and one of the things I'm concerned about in 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 some of the Reformation circles is is that there's in in the corrective that we're giving with evangelicalism's you know, moralistic therapeutic deism is that there's a sense in which there's a, uh, there's almost a fear of putting your toe in the water and actually preaching the law in all of its rigor. Um, for fear that you're going to be labeled a legalist or uh, a closet pietist or something like that, it's like, ugh. So it's it, there's something in the culture that I've seen, and I and I and this is one of the reasons why I thought you had a worthy point to bring up. And you know, I can't say it's pervasive with everybody, but just in, in particular circles, I've seen this, and it's enough of a pattern to think that maybe there's a problem there. But I think we need it, it, everybody in the Reformation who's doing preaching. You know, and who's who has this law do- gospel distinctive that they have learned from the White Horse Inn or other places? You know, my question to them is: When they preach the law, are they preaching it lawfully? Are they preaching it to kill? Are they preaching it in such a way that they're naming out specific sins, making it clear that that is against the will of God, that it's a damnable sin that could send them to hell, and and calling to them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and then bearing fruit in keeping with that. Uh, repentance as the obedience that comes from faith, as Paul describes in Romans. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that is such a good point, Chris. And, and it's funny because we're, we're really hot about uh, certain ecclesiastical sins that we think we can call out and make them into the, uh, the, uh, the sine qua non of, of what you can do to ruin your church or ruin your life. And, and what we forget is that, you know, I mean, we get all hot for the book of Galatians so we can say that, uh, that we don't, uh, we're not legalists anymore. But, you know, when Paul gets down to brass tacks and says, does the spirit live in you? Mm-hmm. He doesn't say, well, sin in general. He no. says these sins. Right. This is the way a sinner who will not receive the kingdom of God looks. Right. But if you have the spirit of God in you because Christ has died for you, this is what the fruit of the spirit looks like. Exactly. And, and, and it is it is so clear from Paul that it is, it, you know, it, I really I, I what I, I as I read the New Testament myself, you know, I, we get to that place in Romans where, where Paul, uh, you know, challenges his accusers on antinomianism. And I wonder if they actually ever listened to it. I wonder if Paul was getting blogged. You know, because because I wonder if they were listening to him, because I really find it incredible that all of them, when he's preaching in public, get mad as as a hot fire. Uh huh. Okay, because he has told them how sinful they are. Yep. And that's why they want to stone him. Okay, but then when they accuse him, it's antinomianism and essentially atheism. Yeah. It's so it's so incredible 
what his detractors would say about him in order to, to make him into somebody who no one should listen to. But I think your point is so well made that the law, the law has the first use. Yeah. <laughs> and if we forget the first use of the law, you know, what, what exactly do we think we're, we're doing by ignoring the third use of the law? I mean, I, I just don't, I, the, the distinction is there so that we can receive the promise. We can receive the good news. But it, but if we forget that we're actually talking about my sin, your sin, this sin, forget it. It's, it's just abstract. All it is, is a, it's a mental game. Right. One of the things, uh, one of my former pastors, a uh, really smart guy by the name of Jeremy Rohde, I, we, we had a conversation about this maybe about three years ago, and it, and he kind of helped clean something up in my mind that I thought was really good. He told me, he said, listen, you know, you, you've, you've seen Star Wars and you've seen Star Trek, you know, you have the, you know, they have the, the phasers, you know, and you can set it to kill or to stun or to maim or, you know, and he says, a lot of people think the law is like that, that somehow you can kind of dial in the different uses he said, and he says, this is the reason why there's such bad third use of the law application type sermons because people are trying to try to figure out if they can tame the law and kind of dial it back a little bit so it just wounds somebody rather than kills them. He says that's ridiculous. He says he says the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to pick the use of the law, it, it, whether it's going to convict somebody first use or if it's going to motivate somebody third use. He says that's it, I I don't have the responsibility as a pastor to pick the use of the law that the Holy Spirit's going to use. My job is to preach the law and the gospel. Yeah, you know, Chris, it's it's such a good point. You know, I mean, that that is wow, that is a great point. I you know, I the, the equation I would use is aspirin. You know, you you take aspirin and aspirin might reduce your fever. It might save you from a heart attack. It might cure your headache. Mm-hmm. Okay? All in if one day. Have, yeah, all in one day. Exactly. It could do all of those things. But you know, when you have a headache, you take aspirin. Right. You know, my doctor has prescribed for me aspirin to help with my blood pressure issues. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the aspirin is what it is, and when you receive it, it's gonna do what it does. Well, that's how the law is. Yeah. And we may we may systematically say it's got three uses, but it's God's law. It's gonna do all the things he intends it to do. Yep. It, in some cases, it doesn't convict. It hardens. That See, that's the part that I think that some pastors are just terrified of and why there's so much bad preaching out there. And like the Joel Osteens, why they're little cottage yep. industries, because these guys, they know that if they were to preach the law in all of its rigor, he wouldn't fill that that basketball stadium. He'd drive people out of there. I mean, they, they might even riot and throw throw tomatoes at him if he did it, you know, and yeah, you know. Oh gosh, that is oh god! Did you follow what happened to Osteen this week? Oh, I I actually played audio from his uh, Pierce the Pierce Morgan interview where he talked about homosexuality. I've never seen somebody theologically uh, do the backstroke before, but that was that was amazing to watch. Pierce was on him well, like but, white but on rice. Fl- look at the flack he got for that little. <laughs> oh my gosh! If he had said any less about it, he couldn't have even opened his mouth. Right. And, and and that little dram of the law sets all the sinners on fire. Right. It, they, I, just it, that little bit of it. Oh, it's 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 astounding. And and you're exactly right. If and, and it's funny because <laughs> it is so funny because you yourself, I think you were the one who turned us all onto his sermon about shellfish. Were you the one, or was that Todd Friel? I think it was Friel who turned you guys on. I was the one who played a sermon about the little birdie sitting on your window. 
you know, oh, as God. being a sign from God. Yeah. Oh, well, somebody somebody was 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 disseminating those the, that clip of Osteen giving us the full law treatment on why we shouldn't eat shrimp. <laughs> what? Now, he can say that, you know, that part of the law, which is dead. Right. You know, that he can say. But if he comes out, and he says, you know, God's law does say that that's wrong. Right. And all of a sudden pierces on him and says, oh, dude, you're judgmental. Yeah, I know. <laughs> It, 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 at my point when I played it on the program this week, I basically said, listen, here you see Piers Morgan giving the exact thing that Ephesians 2 describes, somebody who's dead in trespasses and sins and is hostile to God and is by nature you know, an enemy of God. He is incensed by hearing God's law, and that's what non-Christians do. It's like exactly, you know, and it's it's so ironic. He's accusing Joe Osteen of judgmentalism. And what is Pierce doing right there? Judging well, he's judging. Him. Right. Of course. <laughs> right. OK, we are going to pause right there. We're going to take a break and pay some bills and then come back and finish out the balance of my interview with Frank Turk. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. That's talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> service. This is Josh. How can I help you today? Yes, I would like the return that Jesus I received from you. I heard there was a 60-day return policy. Yes, sir, there is. But can I ask you why you want to return Jesus? Well, I was told if I received Jesus, he'd fix all my problems. And quite honestly, I'm not satisfied with this Jesus. Sir, what is your Jesus doing right now? Nothing. He just sits there. Have you taken time to feed your Jesus? Well, I went to church for the preaching, but nothing has happened. Sir, if you read the fine print on the warranty, you'll see that you are responsible for feeding, not the church or the pastor. Oh. Well, can I exchange this Jesus for another? Sir, what kind of Jesus are you looking for? I need the Jesus that forgives sins. You know, changes your life on the inside, helps you overcome the sins of the flesh, never leaves me nor forsakes me, and will take me to heaven when I die. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We don't stock that Jesus here. You'll have to go somewhere else to have that Jesus. Well, I guess I'll just stick with the one I got since I already opened the box. Wonderful, sir. Can I interest you in getting Jesus for your friends and family? Why would I do that? 
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. If you preach the gospel, you could be called an antinomian. But you're not really an antinomian if you preach the gospel. If you want to know what an antinomian looks like, you look over in the emergent camp. That's... <clears throat> Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. It's a partnership, if you would, and the way you partner with us is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And uh, when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute on a monthly basis $6.95. It's not a lot of money. Well, that's on purpose because the idea is is that by spreading $6.95 out among our large and growing audience, what that does is it levels out our giving and makes it so that we can better budget for our monthly expenses and uh, appropriately plan for our growth as our audience continues to increase. So does our expenses. And so if you haven't joined our crew already, please do so. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button, or you can uh, make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, let's continue now with uh, my interview recorded earlier with Frank Turk from the Pyromaniacs blog. Here we go. You know, I wanted to bring this up, though. The, it, 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 it's always amazing to me when, uh, when the antinomian charge gets thrown at guys like uh, Michael Horton or people like me who make the law gospel distinction. I mean, I, I have been accused of being an antinomian so many times. And it's yes. like I just have to point people out. Do you ever listen to the program? I use the law almost every day, and I rail against sins of all types, including the sins that pastors commit by not – uh, doing, you know, dispensing the duties of their office. But it's like, if you want to know what an antinomian is, you need to look at somebody like Jay Baker, or look at people in the emergent church, who, when you bring the law up to them, even though they claim to be Christians, they will immediately turn around and attack the law as a way of trying to uh, shunt it so that it won't uh, damage their theology. It's amazing. The the arguments they come up with are ridiculous. Well, well, do you uh, do you stone your children when they disobey you? Do you, you eat shellfish? Don't you? So why you know, why are you judging about homosexuality? It's like, oh my goodness. I mean, this is an argument. If you, if I were to apply their logic, I'd have to get rid of the whole thing. There is no law anymore, and that's exactly that's right. what they're trying to do. That's right. That, that's exactly right, Chris. And and it's it's because every every part of God's revelation, when you're that far gone is an affront. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's so 
uh, it's so wildly amusing. I, I really, I, every, people get offended or angry. I really think it's funny because what they, first of all, they don't want the gospel, the Bible in any way to be true. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Bible can't be true to start with. But then if we start and we say, okay, well, okay, if the Bible's not true, what about the Bible just as a story? Let's think about the Bible as a story, and what do you think of that? Well, the idea that man is bad to them seems incongruous. It seems incongruous if the Bible says it. Now, in other contexts, of course, man is bad. They can tell you all kinds of ways that man is bad, but the Bible says it so that you can't accept it there. Okay, well, what about God interacting with men? Well— God really can't interact with men. He's too big. It's too, he's, you know, it's, it's like trying to pour the ocean into a thimble, you know. Right, yeah, yeah. All this, he's, all this other stuff. He's so you know, powerful. We can't comprehend him at all. You exactly. Know? It doesn't matter that he actually spoke words. We can't <laughs> comprehend his words, even though they're in a language we know. Right, it's McLaren's you know? song, Oh, Mysterious Misery, you know. <laughs> oh god I, that's a that, I, that that's his song but I, I changed the words it's a mysterious majesty i mean you can't know nothing about god except for that he's mysterious that's right yeah he moves in mysterious ways i think somebody once said <laughs> i should play that <laughs> i've got that on my hard drive somewhere <laughs> <laughs> so yeah no i i really i really am with you there that that, that that really i think one of the great one of the great things that we can do is to actually see the uh, the real spiritual character of somebody by by getting after the law and, and and not not in a way that says that there's only a law but to say you know what uh, you know that this is uh, you know I have I I am not the uh, uh, the the choir the choir leader here for way of the master but I think that's one of the great reasons that way of the master actually is a is an evangelistic tool mm-hmm. because because what it really says is it, it, this is an inter- this is actually very interesting. I, I used a version of Way of the Master at an international uh, dinner I was at. I was uh, for my job. I get to travel a little bit, and last year I was having dinner uh, with some colleagues from all over the world. I mean, and everywhere, India, China, everywhere. There was about uh, there was about uh, fifteen of us around a table. And the first night, the the first night we had two nights of dinner. The first night they wanted to talk about whether uh, uh, whether man was essentially good or not. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I was I was sitting at dinner eating, and I almost choked when somebody asked the question, you know. And, and they went around the table, and I and and rather than standing up on the table and whipping out my iPad and 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 reading, you know, just just giving them both barrels right there, I let them come to me, you know, right. and I let them come and let everybody say what they're saying. And the question I asked them back was this, you know, you guys have just made the case that you think everybody's essentially good. I want to ask you, you're all you're all business leaders. What's going on at home right now? And they're like, well, what do you mean? I said, is are things running the way they ought to, or are they running a way that's not going to work when you get back? And they were all a little quiet. I said, listen, we all know as business leaders that the truth about people is not that they do what they should do. They right. do what they want to do. Otherwise, they wouldn't need managers. Exactly. Otherwise, they wouldn't need us. So as we have this discussion and we think about it as sort of happy philosophy that we might want to live by, that maybe we want to have faith in our fellow man. Let's remember that practically the way we live is that people do what they want to do. I said, I, I, I have other things I could say about that, but I would like your feedback about that. And everybody was like, I had never thought of it that way before. Okay, well, I let that sink in. And the next day, we're at dinner, and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I, I prayed about it. I said, Lord, if that plants a seed, that's awesome. We get to the place where everybody starts talking about holy books. Uh-huh. Okay? And, and we planted the seed yesterday. The people what? are not good, you know. What 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 possessed these people to, to to have these types of discussions? This is amazing. 
It was. I was. I was just like, Lord, now I know why you asked me to spend these weeks away from my family. Now I know, and I thank you for it. And they they get to me, and I said, Now you guys honestly believe that all the holy books say about the same thing? Yes. I said, Well, what kind of things do you think they say? Well, they give us a moral law. I said, Okay, that that's fine. I said, Why do you think the holy books give us a moral law? Do you think this discussion is related to yesterday at all? And <laughs> and they and they and they stopped a minute, and they said, Well. I think that the moral law really reflects that this is what people wish they could be. Okay, all right, fair enough. If that's the truth, then what you're saying is that the Bible should be telling us about what we think we wish we would be, right? Of course. I said, well, it turns out that the Bible says that we're sinful people. I mean, if we if we read where the law is given in Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. at the end of it, God says to Moses, listen, the people just said they were going to do this, but you know what they just did? They condemned themselves because they're not going to do it. Right. Okay. That, and, I, and I said, do you guys want me to read that part? I can read it to you. I can find it. I've got it right here in the iPad. And they're like, well, no, no, that's okay. I'm like, okay, well, let me read you something else. And we go to the road to Emmaus. Uh-huh. Okay? And I say, now, now, listen, when we get to this place, this man Jesus has died. Okay? Now, whatever else happens before that, whatever fill-in story is between the law and Jesus' death, that's what just happened. And these guys are walking away, knowing the law. Wondering why Jesus didn't come and use that law to take over the whole world. Uh-huh. And instead, he meets them on the road. Now, he just walked out of the tomb, and, and we could have a long discussion about how a guy who was crucified could walk on the seven miles to Emmaus. But here's what I want to do, and I read the road to Emmaus to him, where Jesus says, Oh, you foolish of heart, and then he goes through Moses and all the writings to show how those were about him. Yep. And I asked him, I said, Why would we have a holy book that is not about us? Right. But about him. Yep. Yep. You know, that's the use of the law. Yeah. That's the use of the law right there. And the use and, and the distinction of the law and the gospel. The gospel says we need him. Yes. Yep. You know, the law says you can't do it. And the gospel says we need him. And and that is the right use of the law, especially to unbelievers. You know, I, I'm, I'm convinced that, uh, you know, that the law gospel distinctive is so important uh, because it, precisely because of what you said, I think where churches go wrong, where pastors go wrong, is they turn the Bible into something about us. I mean, I, I constantly send out these really subversive tweets, like saying things like, Jesus isn't your co-pilot and he's not your wingman. Yeah, or, but, but how could he take the wheel then, Chris? Oh, don't go. <laughs> oh, you, you went there. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Go ahead. <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, the, my, and, and and then I send out, you know, I'll send out uh, tweets with links to passages from the scripture. You know, like I, I sent out a, a link the other day to uh, Luke's uh, uh, genealogy of Jesus, and I said, I hate to break to everybody, but this passage proves that the Bible's not about you; it's about Jesus. And I get people who actually come out of the, I mean, come out of the Twitterverse to take me on. Go, what do you mean it's not about me? What do you mean, you know? <laughs> It's uh, it happens all the time, and Crazy. it's unbelievable. It's like no, no, no. This is this is the story about Jesus. You know, the thing you contribute to your salvation is sin. You are dead in trespasses and sins, and you play the part of the rebel, evil, evil person who's rebelled against God and who God really should throw into hell. That's the role you play in the story, and and they get offended. They just absolutely lose it. And these are church people. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. You know, of course, it, it's it is a uh, yeah, it's it's painful. I mean, that's that kind of thing is painful. You know, we uh, two years ago I had to 
I had to move because of work, and I left a church that we were in for eight years. Uh-huh. Um, and that was that was one of the most painful experiences personally in my life because those people are my family and my brothers and sisters. They uh, uh, they held me accountable and they loved me and they were there when we needed them and we were there when they needed us. And uh, I say all that just to say this: um, even in that environment, when we when we about in the middle of that, we, we got a new pastor, and he was a young guy, and uh, he was a graduate of, uh, of uh, uh, SBTS in Louisville. So he's a, he's a Molarite, uh-huh. and, uh, and he wanted to preach the gospel. You know, he wanted us to understand the gospel. But, you know, to even get there with people, we spent a year going through the Old Testament, talking about the story of the Old Testament uh-huh. to prove that it wasn't about Israel. Yep. And to prove that it wasn't about something that's that that is only in the past. Yep. That it is about God's plan A, the only plan He ever had to save the world. That's right. I, and we had to disabuse people of the idea that somehow that whatever was done in Israel doesn't matter to us. That's that's all I got to say about that. It is a it is a it is a rampant thing I think that people who even go through their daily Bible study and read through the Bible in a year miss the fact that the Old Testament doesn't tell us about us except to say we're just like these people who rejected God. <laughs> right. I see myself in the in the grumblers. I see myself in the ones who oh, want yeah. to take on Moses and Aaron and go, "Come on, you guys." You know, I I see myself in Korah's rebellion. I see myself it, it, name the sin in any character. I'm there. You, right. you know, I I I am so screwed up. It's like you go Oh, exactly. Exactly, Chris. Exactly. And, and and I think the kicker is that we don't see ourselves as screwed up. You know, I, I really this is I think this is a way just to kind of tether back to the to the, the keynote of our discussion here. This is a great way in which the White Horse Inn is very useful. Mm-hmm. You know, that that the gospel is not a therapeutic machine. It's not a therapeutic salve. Yep. You know, it is not something that says that we're not well and we can get well. It is a it is a it is God's word to us that the the death which all is coming to all men can be defeated in Christ. Right. And and that is not a little thing. That that's not like getting a broken arm set or even having your appendix removed. No. That is that is and you know, I know this is reform talk. I know this is the the wonkery that we put out there, and it's a shame that it has been driven to that place by the kinds of discussions that happen, but it's the difference between putting life into dead bones and only giving somebody a pill that makes them better. Right. And last time I checked, if you give a pill to somebody who's in skeletal form, it ain't going to help much. That's right. You know, it's exactly yeah. Jesus. I mean, he saves us through his death and in our baptisms, we're buried with him. We're dead already. We're awaiting life. (laughs) You know, it's like, ah, yeah, but uh, how how did we get to this point? You know, where the church is so overrun that it's it, it seems like the the main flow in the stream of visible Christianity is this therapeutic stuff. And how how do you know? Because I, I I think that one of the reasons why you blog is because you you you're tr- you see the errors in in the main flow of things and you want to offer some corrective, but yes. you know. What what are we to do? I mean, how do we fight this? Because it, it, for me, it's not it, – it, you don't have to convince me I, I got to get in the fight. I'm in it. It's a, My yeah. question, how, how can we be more effective to reach people with this message? 
That's you know, Chris. That that is a it's a great question, and and it's a it is a question that uh, that I think even even the the wisest of us don't have a fully formed answer to because it is complex because it is not even though it manifests in a in a macro ecclesial way okay to use big big fat words all right oh you use polysyllabic words you're a very I know, smart I know. more guy. than two syllables and i'm a done i'm done uh <laughs> it's it, it's it it's it it looks you can see it okay from the macro ecclesiastical place that that all of these things in all of these places are all screwed up okay and you know there's rampant all, all kinds of stuff you know there's a church I could throw a rock at this church from my house, and I've thought about it a couple of times, With where they every Sunday are preaching health and wealth prosperity. I just want to throw sticks at them. Right. It, it, is, it drives me crazy that, they, that people think that that's what the gospel is for. But, but you know, that is rampant in all kinds of places. But the problem doesn't get solved, I don't think, because you have a great podcast nope. and me and Phil and Dan have a great have a great blog. I think what happens is this. What ought to happen is this, that we, those people who receive the message and hear it, you know, as Jesus said, those who have ears, let them hear. Mm-hmm. I, I think those who hear the message have to then say, you know what I'm going to do to fix it? I'm going to blog too. That That is, gosh, that's not the answer. <laughs> that is not the answer. The answer is you have to go. And listen, I, you know, Chris, if, if, if you'll let me get on the soapbox here a second. You have to go to church on Sunday. Okay, let's start there. What if all of the what if all of the bloggers that are out there allegedly conducting themselves and gosh, this will get you a lot of hate mail for letting me say this, but allegedly conducting themselves in discernment ministries. What if for four weeks they all stopped blogging and they went to church on Sunday? That's it. That that's all they did. That they went. They sat in the pew next to some other sinner where there's a sinner who's preaching the word to whatever extent he's able, and they sat there with them, and instead of getting angry, listened for the the scrap, the morsel that falls off the table, and get edified by it. You know, one of the things I struggled with in my Christian life in the early in, in the early aughts was that I was sitting under a pastor who was reprehensible in his preaching. Okay, I, I, I honestly felt like there was not actually preaching happening. Okay. But I, I made two choices when that was happening. The first thing I chose to do was that I was going to pray for him. And I wasn't going to pray the imprecatory Psalms. <laughs> you know, I was going to pray for him and say, Lord, you have put this man in your church before your people. And I ask you, Father convict him that your word is true convict him that your word is true because if he did anything right at all when we when he started to preach we would all stand for the reading of god's word mm-hmm. okay so he would read a passage and wherever he went from there that's great but god's word was actually spoken to his people and we came together to hear it mm-hmm. so so there you know it's a, it's a table scrap i mean it's a morsel it's the crust of bread OK, but but there it is. And I, and I, I latched onto that. I said, Father, would you please just convict him that it's true? Let him be convicted that it's true. And I made a personal a, a personal commitment that I was not going to badmouth him in the car on the way home. 
Okay, so I'm praying for him and I'm not going to badmouth him. But I also determined that I was going to stay with the people in that church, that those are God's people. If I believe the gospel, I believe that those are Christians. They confess that Jesus is their savior. They may not have a systematic understanding of that statement. But if they can say that I believe for certain that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, I'm going to stand next to him even in this time. And we're going to sort it out. Now, as time went on, he did get convicted about what what he was preaching and his preaching did improve and i didn't have to say a word to him Mm -hmm. so i would say that there's effectual prayer in the world still thank you very much but the other thing that happened was that even as he got convicted of that he wanted the church to be something that it wasn't he wanted it to be a mega church yikes and when he came to the table with that the church said no now, that's that's an astounding thing to have happen in the Southern Baptist Church. Right. But he came to the table and he said, listen, let's let's get the in that case. In that case, at that time, it was deacons. Let's get the deacons and let's go visit this megachurch. Don't you guys think we could do this? And they looked at him and they said, no. No, it's not that we don't we can't do that. We don't want to do that. Right. Because what we need you to do, my friend, is to preach us the word so that the word can change us and we can love other people. Now, he left. Our new pastor came. And there's that, that, that little tiny basis. But if, if the blogosphere went there and said, you know what? I am going to do what the Bible actually tells me, and I'm going to pray for those in authority over me, and I'm going to love them, and that I'm going to treat other people with the, uh, according to the gospel the way I expect them to treat me according to the gospel, meaning assume that I'm saved and assume that I have value and assume that the gospel which I say I believe applies to me and to them, mm-hmm. that would start to change the church. So you're saying God will change the church. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just want to make sure we, I, I made your point for you there. Yeah. What, what if we did the things that, you know, and, and here we go. Here's where we're going to blow up a little bit. What if we did the things the gospel said to do? Okay, such as? <laughs> Love one another. <laughs> oh, you know? pray, pray for another. people. Pray for our enemies. <laughs> pray for our enemies. What if we read Acts 2 and we believed, wow, that's what the church is supposed to look like? You know, what, what if we what if we looked at it and we said, okay, the, the preaching of the apostles, we sit under it every day. Great, let's do that. And then let's sit with one another and bear each other's burdens. What if I had to sell one of my three cars so that I could help another family in my church? What if the unemployed people, there's a guy in our church, you know, just for an example, not in our church, but as an example, let's say there's a guy in our church who lost his job a year and a half ago when things went bad and he still hasn't found a job. Because he wants to stay with our church. Right. Well, you know, I, I got to tell you, I, I I I know a lot of churches that where, you know, the, the, the preaching focuses on the gospel and it bears fruit in, it, just in the in this description that you're talking about. And so I, I think there's a lot of that happening. There's a lot of congregations that are doing those things. Yes. And and at the same time, we, yet we see that there's there's something askew, you know, kind of in the in the new flow of things in the in the church let me let, one of the things i like in the church too uh currently is uh this idea that I, I think with the fall of many of the denominations and the rise of the non-denominational movement it, protestantism in america has become very much like the wild west it's now the doctrinal oh. and theological wild west yes and what i've seen is is that uh, is that some folks are uh, are are better sheriffs than others because it's like this there's this growing posse of of deputized or self deputized sheriffs who are taking on the outlaw 
uh, you know, preachers, so to speak, not that not that group, the outlaw preachers, but those who are who are deviating from the scriptures. And as a result of it, I, I, there's some really strange things. I mean, there's people who are getting shot by friendly fire, and then some people have this really bad thing. I mean, I, we talk about you know the there's some Calvinists who have a, a, a doctrine of double predestination. Yes. I, I think some in the discernment camp have a doctrine of double separation, and, yes. and they and they fire that thing off first and ask questions later. Yes, you know. So I, I think you know, there's, there's, I, obviously there's, there, there's healthy churches out there, and, um, and you know, I, I think one of my goals is to, you know, help people to see what, understand what an unhealthy church is. But I don't want them to leave an unhealthy church and end up nowhere. Yes, you know, and the, I, oh, that that's perfect, Chris. That is exactly right. And and here's. Here's here's the thing. I, I think it's it, it's it's interesting because I get a little prickly when somebody says healthy, not healthy. Right. Okay. Because Paul doesn't use the word healthy, not healthy. Okay. okay? Paul says it, it. Let's. I mean, for me, I think a great touchstone here is the letters to the Corinthians. Okay? okay. Where he tells them, "Listen, you are the church, the church, the church, the church. God made you the church." And then he lists all of these things that they're doing wrong and how the gospel fixes that for them. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and for Paul, it's not about whether you are healthy or unhealthy. It's about whether you are actually the church or not the church. Okay. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like that, uh, that, that, that thing that Yoda says to Luke, do, you know, no try, just do. <laughs> you mean, uh, you, you, I think you, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Uh, it, it, I use the karate kid line, you know, where Mr. Miyagi says, uh, you either karate do or karate don't. No karate maybe, you get squish, you know. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 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 There's no they try. Try is what a, a, a nine year old says when he really didn't want to do it. And, and, you know, none of us are nine years old here. Right. If we really want to serve Jesus, let's want to serve him the way he said to serve him. Well, then the, the, let me ask the question, then, because I, I see in Paul's letter to the Galatians a different tone than the one to the Corinthians. The Corinthians. Yep. I mean, these guys were it was just utter church chaos. I mean, they were getting drunk on the communion wine. I mean, <laughs> he had a guy sleeping with his father's wife. I, it was just a mess. I mean, they weren't practicing the gifts of the Spirit in any coherent manner. I mean, it was a total bizarre free-for-all, and yet he, he lovingly corrects them. And then you turn around and you read his letter to the Galatians, and it's so harshly worded. I mean, at, you know, the kicker comes in chapter 5 when he says, right. You who would be justified by the law, you have been alienated from Christ, and you have fallen from grace. I mean, yes. using that language, the question then exists. It, it comes up, are they church or are they uh, synagogue of Satan, which is the other category? Yes. You know, so, I mean, because when, when we look at churches that are struggling, there's no—I don't think there's any one— thing that people are struggling with in some in some senses you have bizarre uh, out of control manifestations of the spirit in other senses you've got you've got rampant immorality that's not in check and in other senses you've got you've got flagrant heresy that is sending people to hell and and so it, you, you, there's no one prescriptive you know well, I, yeah no i think i think that that is a that is a um a well, a well-minded, a well, well-considered rant there, Chris. I, I would agree with that, and I think that that is the flavor of the key statement that that Dr. Horton made that I sort of objected to there. Well, I didn't sort of object it; I objected. I wrote an open letter, but um, 
but in <laughs> but in that let, let let's you know everybody wants to say okay Galatians and Corinthians and, and I'm okay with that because that's the biblical discussion but you know one of the one of the things we have today that that may not have been evident in the first 1500 years after that was after those two distinctions were made is the reformation right okay and everybody all of these people all all of the people that you and I would say are in our camp whether they're on our side is another story but in our camp would would say reformation reformation we need a new reformation you know one of the key premises of the reformation is that every church at all times is always a truth of admixture an admixture of truth and error yeah okay that statement has got to come back to our heads because unless the church actually openly denies the gospel, you know, D- D- Doug Paget denies the gospel. Yes, he, he does. Denies, he denies that Christ died for sin. So if he pastors a church, that church is following a man who denies the gospel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, on the other hand, I, you know, I don't even want to name names of people who I would say are, are in the gray area or who are a, a, a pretty significant, you know, they're 50-50 admixture. I don't even want to name names there for fear of, of, of completely derailing the discussion. But, but the truth is that all of our pastors, all of our pastors have something loony in their theological closet. All of them. Some of us are some of us are hyper dispensationalists on the back burner. You know, some of us are antinomian or or tacitly antinomian mm-hmm. that somehow we drive to the place where we don't want to mention sin. Okay? You know, that that there are there are problems, but we don't run away from people who are mistaken. You know, that that's why the book of James is is a good thing to say here. Because uh, uh, you know, somebody who turns a brother away from sin. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's what we're supposed to be doing. Right. And, and, and how do you do that if you walk away from them? You know, I had this discussion yeah. Yeah. with uh, with my pastor when we lived in, in, in Salem Springs. I had this discussion with him and I said, oh, now, Tad, I said, what, what, you know, why do you think in Galatia, when Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, he didn't tell the good Galatians, of, of which there were some clearly, to leave, start their own church? Why do you think he did that or didn't do that? Why do you think he instead admonished them to believe the gospel and live as if it were true? Right. And he said, well, the, well there, was a, there wasn't any other churches to go to. Ugh. Oh, wow. Is that really the answer? No, it's not, because even Paul says that he'd, t- he'd turn Hymenaeus and Phileas over to Satan. You yeah. know, So, I mean, he didn't turn the Galatian churches over to Satan. He admonished them to come back to the gospel. Right. Right, and that's and I think that's the kicker. I think that that there's there's still room. That I think there's still room for diversity. You know, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Reformed, Baptist, non-denominational. You know, I, I would even say that there's room for people who don't want to have systematic categories. That that they have broader, broader, broader categories, and and they and they still are willing to confess that they're that people have a problem that is a dying problem that Jesus is the only one who can bring new life to. That is good enough for me as far as I'm concerned. Maybe maybe you might disagree with that, but I think that somebody who even makes that simple a confession is is Christian. Now, whether they are the kind of Christian I strive to be is absolutely irrelevant. The oh, fact that right. they confess that Jesus is Lord and Christ is is what brings them to the place at the cross where their sins are forgiven. Right. In in in, in our Lutheran uh, theologies and our systematics, they, they talk about what we call the felicitous inconsistency. Yes. And so Amen. It, it's this idea that, you know, there's going to there are going to be people in 
churches who I that I know conf- the pastor completely biffs it on law and gospel. He preaches the law, and there's going to be some gray-haired old lady who's on her deathbed going, "Yeah, I don't know about any of that other stuff, but all I know is that Jesus died for me." Yeah, that's right. That lady's going. That lady's in. You know, there's going to be attorneys there. I know that's hard to believe. Um, yeah, but it, it, heaven is going to be. It's going to be this great surprise about who's there and who's not there, and it's a scandal that I'm going to be there. You yes, know, that's the Amen. thing. <laughs> the, I mean, there are. There, the, I know that there are people who are going to go. I don't want to be in a kingdom of God where Roseboro is going to be there because he is such a jerk. You know, and and that's the wonderful scandal of the cross is that even I can get in. You know, not yeah. because I'm holy, but because Christ is. You know, yeah. and isn't it funny how much that sounds like what the Pharisee said to Jesus? Isn't it? Isn't it funny how much that sounds like that Jesus's admonition to them that there's only one thing that you can say that is an unpardonable sin, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Right. You know that gee, that He's going to save who He's going to save. And that's so funny that God tells them that from the beginning. I'm going to save who I'm going to save. Right. I am going to save who, who I'm going to save. And gosh, could we just hear that? And see, it comes back back to the power of the Word of God. Where the Word of God is preached and the gospel is proclaimed, you know, it says that God says in His Word, His Word does not return to Him void. Yes. And so the reality is, is that some guy who doesn't even know what he's doing with the text, has no training theologically, if he opens up the Word of God and preaches the text or teaches the text, God the Holy Spirit is going to raise people from the dead and is going to quicken their spirits and give them faith and repentance, and they are in. And it, 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 it uh, that's the thing. And it, one of the reasons why I get so angry about some of the preaching that goes on nowadays is because these guys, they take, they, they don't, if, if the Bible says God's word doesn't return to him void, these guys don't preach the word, so it doesn't go out. How can it even yes. return? You know, you, you take a couple of verses out of context and turn Jesus into your financial advisor, and it's yes. like, you know, no, 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 no. This is not this is not the kind of preaching that actually the, the Holy Spirit uses to convict people of their sins, drive them to their knees in despair of their own self-righteousness and realize that they are by nature dead in trespasses and sins and that they are undone beho- before a holy God so that God... God then, through the gospel, gives them life and comforts them and, and forgives them and, and, and lets them know that they are pleasing, not because of anything they've done, but because of everything that Christ has done. If, yes. if, you, can't, if you don't preach the word, it can't return to God you know, void or not void. It, it's, it, it doesn't go out in so many churches, and that's one of the big dangers nowadays. That's, that is so true. That is, that is really good, Chris. You know, Jesus, Jesus is a life coach. You know, Jesus is a, and you, you, you just, you Facebook that some uh, today or yesterday, something about that, but yeah. uh, you know, Jesus is a life coach. You know what he says? Uh, why are you sinning? Yeah. Do, do you want to get well? Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's, and that's to a person who doesn't want to get healed. Exactly. You know, that's kind of the subtext of the whole thing. A lot of people read this passage. They, 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 what, what's the deal with that guy? It's like, no, look at, you know, Jesus is actually, you know, chastising him. Don't you want to get healed? Oh, well, you know, I've got excuses. I can't get to the water when the angel stirs it. So Jesus heals him. And this guy rats Jesus out because <laughs> he was healed on the Sabbath. And hey, there's the guy who healed me. Go get him, you know. Yep. Yeah, well, that, but, that, but that's the kind of life coach Jesus is. Your problem is you. Right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of the Bob Newhart thing. Right. If and- you could stop that. Just stop it. But if you can't stop it, you're going to need something else, and that's where I come in. Yeah, and Jesus didn't really seem to be all that concerned with financial management. He had Judas handling the money bag, and he was a thief. And Jesus didn't even save up enough money to pay his taxes. He let the fish do it. (laughs) That's awesome. 
Oh, Chris. Uh, you know what? We need to get on syndicated morning radio together. We would be the best. We would be fun. <laughs> oh, we, we would we would uh, we would frighten people. I'm afraid <laughs> <laughs> that would be okay. That's all right. They could be a little scared. <laughs> that would be all right. Listen, you know, we we uh, I know that we had sort of a, an hour set up here, but uh, we're we're about to hit that mark. And yeah. what I I, I want to make sure that uh, as as you come here, I, what I don't want to do is leave the interview off at a place where uh, things that people who normally listen to you. Uh, had questions that we didn't answer. Do you think that we have covered everything that everybody wants to talk about here? Because I want to be as transparent as possible about the intention of that letter, mm-hmm. about my heart for, for the kind of, of correction I, I'm looking out there, for, for my belief that Dr. Horton is an absolutely categorically orthodox person who has just made a mistake that I think that he could correct. And uh, and any other thing that's out there, do you think there's any anything that we ought to talk explicitly about rather than sort of uh, have, I really I have enjoyed the conversation so far, but I want to make sure that I don't leave you in a lurch that uh, that we haven't covered something we need to cover. I, I think just for the sake of clarity. OK, and that that would be this if, in, in the best of all worlds, uh, you, you know, uh, if you had Horton's ear, if you yes. had Kim Riddlebarger's ear, what would be the practical thing that you would like to see happen uh, them do differently, you know, to, to to tweak their programming content in such a way that it would address the issue that you think is there. What I mean, what does it look like? What does it sound like? What needs to happen? Uh, there is in the in the excerpts that I quoted, and of course, it's the Baptist who speaks common sense to the group. So I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate Pastor Jones for being the one to pipe up about this. If they would approach their concerns with the kind of balance I know they all believe in. Okay. Okay. I, I think that it is a hundred percent right to say something to the effect that a church without the gospel is no church. That's a hundred percent right. Okay. But it is also a hundred percent right to say that a church where there are hearers of the word and not doers also is also not a church. You know, that admonition in Scripture is not an unreformational statement, and it is it is it is hard for me. It's hard for me. okay? but maybe it's not hard on anybody else. Maybe it's just my problem, but it's hard for me to listen to them, to give the right minded rebuke to those who don't preach the gospel and to give what is essentially a um, a pat on the head. And a therapeutic, a therapeutic whitewash to those who preach the gospel, where it doesn't, it doesn't sink in and it doesn't bear any fruit. Now I know that that sometimes the Lord uses the gospel to harden and sometimes to soften. I get all those distinctions. I'm not saying that always when you preach the gospel, always there's, you're going to be in a group of people where all of them come to Christ. I'm not saying that, but I am saying this: if we can make the confession as Dr. Horton does. That reformed churches, people of the confessional stripe, tend not to demonstrate the individual and collective fruits of the Spirit, then maybe what we have to say is there's something wrong. If we believe they're all if we believe that the people in those churches are by and large saved, there's something wrong with our approach or method. 
Okay. There's something wrong. There's some kind of inconsistency we have that ought to be equally addressed because I, I, I believe this with all my heart. We are not fixing anything if we go from people without gospel to people without law. And again, that sounds like I'm accusing them of antinomianism, but I'm not. What I'm saying is that if we don't go to the third use of the law, not the first use, not the second use, but if we don't have the third use of the law where we are being instructed by what God has asked us to do because our hearts are ready for it, that is an equally, equally concerning problem. Okay. Let me – I need to ask just one more clarifying question real quick. Sure. Do you personally hold to a doctrine of vocation? Um, I have – I honestly have never thought about it, so I think I have to answer the question no. Okay. Let me, let me give you an example of what I, what I mean by that. Oh, so many times when I look into the law and you know, it tells me what God's will is for my life – what comes back to me is that God wants me to love and be faithful to my wife. God wants me to uh, be a good parent to my children. God wants me to be a good employee. And, I would agree with all of that. And and so over and again, when I look at, especially in some of the epistles, you know, where Paul says, work quietly with your hands and provide for yourself and have a little bit of extra to give to the poor. Okay. Uh, husbands, love your wife. Wives, submit to your, hus- uh, to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Over and again, when I see these... Uh, when I see God's will for my life, I, I think that that's what the Bible gets at. In many, in many senses, that's what we're talking about, what a good work is. Um, has that, has that, does that view factor into this discussion in any way then? Because, you know, it, sometimes what I, when I hear people and their concern about that the, there's not a, a, they're not demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit, my concern is is that is it possible that you might have a, a, such a narrow view of the fruits of the Spirit that it rules out some of the broader spectrum things that have to do with the, the mundane and ordinary, which are clearly the will of God? Yes, yes. Uh, you know, that, that's, that, that's a really balanced way to go there, Chris. I, I really like that. Um, uh, here's, here's what I would think about that. I think that that, uh, that is one of the things that always upsets me when I'm talking to an unbeliever or, or, or somebody who is who is uh, you know lo- says he loves Jesus but not the church. If if I can if I can say it that way, uh-huh. that uh, that what they have tend to do, do is to minimize all of the real. And I like to, I really I'm going to have to think about this and in, in, install this in my vocabulary more. They they miss all of the vocational good that happens through the church, and they're looking for you know it's kind of like the guy who says well if the Bible's really written by God. He should have put pi to the hundredth place in the Bible so we could have had that and known that he was the one because mm-hmm. there's no way they could have calculated that back when they wrote the Bible. You know, he's looking for his proof rather than God's proof of what's going on there. And I think that it's overstated to say that even the English-speaking church does not do enough good. It does a lot of good. Yeah, Church-going people are generally people who are demonstrating the third use of the law. So that that is that is one thing I, I say. But but I think the, the, the way it cuts in the other direction is that I don't think that it's that if we're asking for people, for example, to be more charitable and loving, which is an explicit thing that the Bible asks us for. Mm-hmm. And we and we pretty consistently don't go there. Yeah. I, I think that that is not a question of the vocational impact. I think you're right. I think that people do miss the they miss the boat on the. I, gosh, that is this is going to make this whole hour worth it for me, Chris. That whole <laughs> that question of vocation. That's great. Okay. Um, uh, but you know they miss that vocational uh, impact of the church in lieu of um, 
in lieu of what they what they would really want to see from the church, and right. I think that's that's probably not great. Yeah, I, I'm a firm believer that uh, uh, when a mother cleans up vomit off the carpet in the middle of the night and comforts a sick child and cleans a snotty nose and changes a poopy diaper, I think because God has so clearly said that that is his will, and God is the one who puts people into the office of parent— that that's, that actually falls into the category of a good work uh, and a fruit of the Spirit. And I, I, I fear that many times we, we lose sight of that in these types of conversations, and that's why I brought it up. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. So. All right. Well, I I have to go, uh, but uh, in in you know we got I think we got what we needed to get done in just a little over an hour, and it was a fantastic conversation, and you were a great guest. Well, thank you, Chris. Lord's blessings to you and uh, and to your work and your ministry. And I pray that uh, that this uh, podcast and the ability to have this conversation helps clarify your points and continues the conversation as uh, people wrestle with the right use of law and gospel and how it plays out in the life of uh, of we Christians. Amen. Thanks, Chris. God bless you. You too. Well, there you have it. That was my interview with Frank Turk, and I really enjoyed that interview, and I thought it was uh, a, very, a very important conversation to have, and I hope that, uh, that after hearing it, that people have a better understanding of what it is that he was concerned about and uh, what prompted him to write his open uh, letter to uh, Mike Horton and the guys at the White Horse Inn. And uh, hopefully the dialogue will continue as we continue to wrestle with God's Word, preach law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and the fruit that is born via the working of the Holy Spirit and God's Word in our life in keeping with repentance. Now, if you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>